You're listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is David Sloan Wilson. David is an eminent evolutionary biologist and the founder of the Evolution Institute at Binghamton University in New York. He uses multi-level selection theory to illuminate questions in philosophy, sociology, medicine, bioengineering, and religion. And David's works include Darwin's Cathedral, Evolution for Everyone, Does Altruism Exist?, and most recently, This View of Life, Completing the Darwinian Revolution. Welcome, David. Thank you, Iona. Happy to be here. And David is coming to us from New York State, and I'm coming to you, as usual, from Buenos Aires. I think uh, perhaps it would be most useful to begin with a definition of what you mean by multi-level selection theory, for those who are not familiar with that term. Well, I think uh, I'll do that in just a moment. But uh, to jump immediately to multi-level selection theory, I think might be a little premature for some of your uh, listeners. So I think the starting point uh, might be the idea that um, evolution provides a worldview, this view of life, which was uh, from the final passage of Darwin's Origin of Species, the, the same theory that is so explanatory in biology can be just as explanatory for all things human, uh, that this has policy implications in addition to its intellectual appeal. And then after covering all of that, then we can talk about multi-level selection theory. I mean, we can talk about it right away if you want. And with my, with my broad introduction then, I can say that multi-level selection theory uh, basically explains how adaptations can evolve or fail to evolve at any level of a uh, multi-tier hierarchy. As soon as I said that, it sounded too um, abstract. And so I'm I'm happy to unpack that, but uh, let me have you take your turn right now. So you are a proponent of using our knowledge of evolutionary theory to inform areas in which it's not usually applied. Do you want to Give a few examples of that. Well, so much depends on uh, one's background assumptions and, and uh, perspective. Uh, really, if, if you're not a creationist, then uh, you'll agree that um, we are one species, we are a product of evolution, and why shouldn't um, the theory that, that um, is brought to bear on all other species be brought to bear on our species? It makes good sense. We're a very distinctive species, um, uh, largely due to the fact that we're so cultural. Uh, so much of what we do is based not directly on our genes, but by our, on our cultures. And uh, that's actually not uh, unique. Uh, other species have cultures, cultural traditions. Uh, in fact, that's one exciting 
uh, area of uh, in uh, evolutionary uh, theory, but clearly we're in a class uh, of our own in terms of our capacity for culture. And behind that is our capacity for symbolic thought. That's something which appears to be very, very distinctive. I never like to use the word unique. Happy to have other species be shown to have the capacity for symbolic thought. But uh, uh, so far, based on what we know, even our closest primate relatives, chimps and bonobos, uh, do not think symbolically the way that we do. So so, uh, those require an explanation, uh, but that explanation must be an evolutionary explanation. It arose. These, what are these capacities? Whatever they are, they arose and they spread compared to other ways of, of thought. So really there's no way of getting uh, away from uh, evolutionary uh, thinking. And, and, and the, the idea that, these, that this theory has not been brought to bear on our species, we really have to look at the history of social thought. We have to actually become uh, sociologists and, and historians. You know, why was it when Darwin's theory was uh, originated back in 1859 and Darwin himself, you know, was um, uh, convinced that it would explain all aspects of, of, uh, of humanity. But nevertheless, what happened over the last century and a half was a kind of a division where, where the human related subjects um, um, did not make use of evolution. That's a complicated social history, and it's and it's and it's uh, it's not one sided. It's not as if we, you had a group of people that were just you know couldn't couldn't bring bring themselves to to think this way. The evolutionists themselves became highly gene centric, um, and uh, and and evolutionary biology became restricted only to the study of genes as if that's the only way for offspring to resemble their parents, something that's patently false. But basically, evolutionary biologists in some ways seeded the study of humans and culture to other disciplines, and those disciplines developed in their own ways without touching base much with evolutionary theory. Uh, That's not sustainable, and it's not desirable to have so many separated intellectual traditions. I think that... uh, this is now coming into your own area of expertise, Iona. I mean, what would you think about all of these different disciplines and the human-related subjects, the social sciences, the humanities, different schools of thought within each of those, all more or less um, uh, separate islands, basically, isolated in large part, not entirely, but in large part from each other. That is not intellectually healthy, in my opinion. You gave a lot of examples in your book where I can see how evolutionary theory would be helpful um, and how we can also see how looking at the defining the organism as a as a group, as a looking at the group level would also be helpful. But I still am unable to see how it would be how it would be directly relevant to my discipline. And you're and I you know your discipline just for my for my benefit uh, because I don't know you well. If you could explain, if you could explain your discipline. Um, yeah, my background is in English. Uh, well, I did a, my undergraduate degree in English literature, and my PhD was in. I guess it's kind of cusp between English and history. 
Right. And I studied the Enlightenment period, Enlightenment uh, essays in particular. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, as undergraduates, well, perhaps not obviously, but when we were studying Victorian literature and its background, uh, we read The Origin of Species mm-hmm. as one of the kind of background texts, along with Das Kapital and, and um, Freud and um, for the later part of the period. So I also read The Selfish Gene when I was 18. Okay. I, I love that book. It blew my mind. Uh-huh. And of course... I think that everybody accepted evolution as an idea, but how it is relevant to when I'm doing a close reading of a poem, for example, I'm really not sure. I can't see how that, how that I can, it's, it's relevant in that I'm a human being and another human being wrote the poem and we both evolved, but it's also true that, I'm entirely made up of electrons and quarks, and so is the person who wrote the poem. But that still doesn't tell me anything specific that will help me to create a close reading of that particular piece of poetry, to give an example. Yeah, yeah. And so that's a point well taken, a point that I take well, is that uh, just because all branches of knowledge are connected uh, doesn't mean you have to consult every branch of knowledge. Um, I don't feel the need to consult quantum physics either. So it's not as so. So that point is is um, is well taken. You want to ask what's the added value of a particular perspective, any particular perspective, um, for a given field of of uh, of study. And on the uh, topic of literature, that actually takes several forms. As you probably know, there is a branch of literary scholarship called. Uh, literary Darwinism uh, that includes the study of Victorian literature, which would be your home, your home base. And, uh, and it's not my home base, but I, I mention it just because I read that that is the context in which we would study evolutionary theory in a literature course. Yeah. When we get to the Victorians, because that that text was obviously influential to them. Yeah, I know. And I'm, Thomas Hardy is a someone. I mean, obviously, when Darwin's theory was the talk of the world, and so that included and was therefore reflected in a lot of the literary productions of the time. Uh, um, Thomas Hardy uh, is an author, one of his books, The Woodlanders, which uh, turns out to be a, a beautiful fictional ethnography of 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 Victorian culture, the woodland culture, in kind of pre-industrial age, with its class structure and its economy, and and uh, uh, all reflecting, uh, kind of, or at least the author reflecting on Darwin's theory. I remember he was talking about, you know, the 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 uh, in the forest, the branches are kind of jostling each other. Um, and uh, Hardy is thinking of this as this great competitive struggle among the trees. But um, anyhow, we're, we're straying a bit. Let's see, where do we want to go with this? Uh, with this uh... So I think you, you talked about evolution traditionally being gene-centric. And perhaps you could explain a little bit um, how your understanding of evolution and 
which is part of the extended evolutionary synthesis, how that expands on that um, focus on genes. Yeah, so uh, when you go back to basics, since Darwin knew nothing about genes, uh, he framed his theory in terms of inheritance, uh, or you might say replication. So the the fundamental ingredients of of uh, Darwin's theory of natural selection, what deserves the term Darwinism, even though even though evolutionary theory has gone way beyond Darwin, um, why do we use the word Darwinism? Um, most of us do when it for something that has three ingredients. Um, first of all, uh, variation. Just about everything that you can measure varies. Number two, selection. Those differences make a difference in terms of survival and reproduction. And three, heredity, offspring resembling parents. Uh, when you have those three ingredients, any process, not just genetic evolution, but any process with those three ingredients are going to result in populations changing over time, and not in any way, but in, in ways that result in the accumulation of of traits that enhance survival and reproduction. In other words, this is a process that adapts organisms to their environments. They, it produces functional organization. Any process that has those three ingredients. So that I think is rock solid, and it's against that background that um, that we see that uh, if we only confine that. Um, uh, that message or that that inquiry to uh, genetic evolution, we're missing other evolutionary processes. For example, uh, mechanisms of inheritance that are cultural, or our individual learning abilities. Uh, B. F. Skinner, the uh, great uh, behaviorist, uh, was famous for using the phrase "selection by consequences" in describing open-ended individual learning as like natural selection. In other words, individuals vary in what they do. Those differences make a difference. And organisms have evolved by genetic evolution to have a way of uh, ramping up the successful behaviors and tamping down the unsuccessful behaviors. And so what that means is, is that each and every learning organism you could call an evolutionary process in its own Right. Uh, to, to put that in plain English, if I want to understand the way you are, why you behave the way you do, I might need to know your history, not your genetic history, not even your cultural history, but your learning history, your, your, your experience with your environment is going to be the best guide to understanding why you behave the way you do. And that is basically natural selection uh, thinking. It's a, it's a history of personal reinforcement rather than cultural or genetic evolution. But we should be focusing on all three. When we, when we understand, try to understand what's out there, it, it, it needs to include these three different timescales, the individual lifetime, the cultural history, and the, and the genetic history. You gave a lovely example of how to look at learning in an evolutionary way in your book, talking about Toyota. And Toyota, of course, are famous for their good management practices. 
Right. I've read lo- I've read lots of accounts of the Toyota management and um, how they have made this work. But you approach it in a very interesting, uh, with a very interesting and new to me framing, which is that at Toyota, what they do is they encourage people to be free to make mistakes. Yes, mistakes are a good thing. Because then if you have a wide variety of different behaviors or actions, then you have sufficient material for selection. So then you can see which behaviors are the most productive. So it's it's evolutionary uh, theory leads you to a more trial and error based approach rather than a kind of command and control approach where you decide you decide by fiat what you're going to do and then you lay down those rules. That's right, um, Iona. And let me expand upon that because it enables us to get to get right to the point in terms of uh, how this matters for public policy. So in that example and, and uh, elsewhere, I point out that there's two things that don't work and only one thing that can work by way of a policy philosophy. One thing that doesn't work is laissez-faire. The idea that the pursuit of lower level interest robustly benefits the common good, which is the metaphor of the invisible hand, that is profoundly untrue. So that's one thing that doesn't work. The other thing that doesn't work is centralized planning because the world is too complex for anybody or any group of people to devise and implement a grand plan. So those are the two main policymaking philosophies at play. And if they don't work, uh, what can work? A managed process of cultural evolution. We must have a target of selection, and that must be an intentional target. That we must vary, we must, there must be variation of practices. We have to orient variation around the target. And then we have to learn how to replicate the best practices. So what that is, is a managed process of cultural evolution. It's the only thing that can work. And Toyota is actually one of many examples. So uh, in the Toyota, just to expand upon this for your readers, um, in the old days, they had a whole bunch of ropes along the assembly line hanging down from the ceiling. And whenever there was a dysfunction at the assembly line, the workers were instructed to pull the rope, and that would signal a swarm of activity in order to solve the problem. And a candidate solution would then be implemented always one at a time, because if you, even if you try to implement two things at once, as it ramifies through the very complex assembly line system, then there would, might be unforeseen consequences. So one at a time, they implement solutions to solve that problem, make sure that it doesn't percolate in a bad way elsewhere in the whole system, and then they incorporate uh, a new best uh, practice. So th- what they did was that they, they basically, they happened upon a evolutionary system, and that's why Toyota works so, uh, so well. So isn't that awesome? That's one thing. Toyota, a to- Toyota assembly plant as an evolving a system designed and built to uh, to evolve, and um, and isn't it interesting that there's actually many examples 
of that. In fact, because that is the only thing that can work, it's the only thing that ever has worked. And I'm now, with the help of historians, going back to interpret periods of history that resulted in positive, large-scale social change, uh, including the philosophical tradition of pragmatism, which originated in America, very much in response to Darwin's theory of evolution, and resulted in this pragmatic approach to policy that was very influential in figures such as John Dewey, uh, the, uh, the uh, uh, policies of uh, presidents uh, such as Woodrow Wilson, who was our globalist, basically, envisioned America as a citizen um, in a global, um, global uh, community. So here again, actually, is a really good example of how, of how a novel perspective um, evolutionary perspective is now providing a, a new kind of a light on uh, something like the philosophical tradition of of, uh, of pragmatism, a humanistic topic. I'm not sure I follow. How is evolution shedding a different light on that evolutionary theory? Well, first is the insight, uh, for me at least, that the the successful policy philosophy must be one of managed cultural evolution. If laissez-faire doesn't work and if uh, centralized planning doesn't work, we have to have a, essentially an experimental approach to public policy that's explicit about the target of selection. Basically, society um, being improving society being the target of um, of selection. So there's point one, the need for evolutionary thinking in order to formulate policies of all sorts. And then point two, going back in history to see in cases where there was positive social change, was it the case that this evolutionary approach was in fact um, implemented, even if they, they might or might not have used the word evolution but um, or complexity, but uh, that's in fact what they were doing. And then, um, and then testing out that idea in particular historic cases, such as pragmatism, uh, that's the sense in which you're becoming, um, you're doing historical research, but from a quite a focused theoretical uh, perspective. You have, in a sense, particular hypotheses that you're testing about a uh, historical period. Maybe I'll try to summarize to see if I've understood this correctly. So in, uh, in order to take this evolutionary approach in policy, what you should do is you have a goal and you want to set up your incentive such that everybody who is meeting that goal will be rewarded so you'll, you'll reward actions that, that achieve that goal, but you won't tell people how to set about achieving the goal. So you will leave it up to them to find their method of achieving your goals, but you will, you will reward any approaches that meet the, meet the goal. Is that correct? Yeah, that's about that's very largely correct. <laughs> that's the first thing to say. I would tweak it just a little bit to talk about um, both planned variation and unplanned variation. You did a good job of describing unplanned variation. Let 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 a thousand flowers bloom, basically, but then but then select the flowers that 
take you towards your goal. And there's so much natural variation of that sort that you would never want to ignore it. Your best ideas are probably going to become that way because they are unforeseen. At the same time, you also want planned variation. These would be like, you know, experiments with randomized control trials where you really have, um, um, you're making very careful comparisons between this way of doing it and that way of doing it. And then you're bringing all of the, you know, the tools of scientific methodology in order to, uh, in order to determine which one to, uh, uh, which one to do. Realizing, however, that even if whatever you decide, whatever turns out to be true in the case of a careful trial like that, uh, need not be true elsewhere because life is very contextual. And a best practice that was developed in one place or context um, might not work in another context. And so you really have to be mindful all the time and at all scales about, you know, is what you're doing working? And, uh, and let's be flexible about, um, about, uh, about changing and let's have the apparatus so that we can, so that we can be doing something a little bit like Toyota. It doesn't have to be, I mean, it could be much more informal, but something a little bit more, uh, a little bit like Toyota in just about everything we do. And if we like, we can segue this conversation towards psychotherapy and training techniques. These are now working at the individual level, individuals that want to change. In the case of psychotherapy, they really want to change because they're experiencing a great amount of distress. In the case of training, such as an athlete, um, athletes at all skill levels want to get better. And so, um, and so uh, that is, you know, how, how do they do that? And it turns out that they also need to have a variation and selection process, and that requires a degree of flexibility, an ability to work around obstacles. And so now uh, therapy and training can be recast in evolutionary terms, which is a very exciting area that I'm uh, involved in working with people like Stephen C. Hayes, who founded a a form of mindfulness-based therapy called um, uh, acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. I want to get back to, um, because I think this has got into the territory of using trial and error to find the best method, which is which is very which is very helpful, but not necessarily specifically evolutionary. I want to return to the evolutionary questions and the idea of different levels. So one of the uh, issues that you highlight in the book is that what is best for at one level is not necessarily best at another level. So for example, you give the example of cancer. What is best for your your cancer cells are in competition with other healthy cells, and they have evolved to try to ensure their own survival and reproduction at the expense of others. And cancer treatment, you said, can sometimes inadvertently worsen that situation because if you take a lot of chemotherapy, what you are doing is selecting for those cancer cells that are resistant to chemotherapy. 
Um, just as if you take a lot of antibiotics, you're creating superbugs because you're in effect selecting for those bacteria which are which are resistant to the antibiotics you're using. That's right. And so with cancer, we have an obvious example of selection at a lower level, competition between individuals, harming the welfare of what we could see as the group of all the cells in your body. And the example that you give of the chicken farm actually illustrates this very beautifully. Could you tell us about about that? Oh, it's the most wonderful example. I've been using it for many decades, but it's evergreen, so I'm happy to um, to uh, uh, recount it um, uh, once again. So imagine that you're a chicken breeder and you want to breed a strain of hen that um, lays a lot of eggs. How do you do it? Uh, so um, eggs live in groups. They always uh, chickens live in groups. They always have. And nowadays they live in cages, which is sad. Um, in any case, imagine that you have many cages of of, uh, of hens, and you select for them in two ways. In the first way, uh, you monitor the egg laying of each hen, and you and you select you you choose the most productive hen in each cage to breed the next generation of hens. In the second experiment. Uh, you monitor the productivity of whole cages, and you use all the hens in the most productive cages to breed the next generation of hens. Now, this experiment has all has actually been done, and the result of the first experiment, perversely, is that egg productivity went down, not up, even though you selected the most productive hen within each cage. And what you actually did was you selected the most aggressive hen within each cage because the biggest bully, by intimidating the others, was the most productive within each group. Uh, it turns out that aggressiveness bullying is highly heritable. And only five generations, you have uh, selected a nation of psychopaths, as I like to put it, who murder each other and pluck each other's feathers in their incessant attacks. And of course, they're not laying many eggs. By selecting the most productive groups, you're selecting the most the groups with the most cooperative and docile hens within them, and so that um, that illustrates uh, the idea of uh, of multi level selection. Basically, uh, selection is taking place within any given group, and it's favoring the most productive individuals, which are, in this case, the most aggressive individual, and that's comparable to the cancer example that you gave. Uh, cancer is a strain of cells that proliferates compared to the other cells uh, in a perverse way that is, that is adaptive. That's what natural selection is all about. And that's what Darwin realized way back at the beginning. He thought that his theory could explain all aspects of design previously attributed to a creator, but soon enough he realized that he could not explain all of the traits, uh, social behaviors that we associate with morality and virtue, because those require individuals to do good things to others or to their groups as a whole. Those things almost always require time, energy, and risk, and therefore place the virtuous individual at a disadvantage compared to more self-oriented individuals within the same group. So what we're illustrating with cancer 
and with the chicken experiment is something which is truly general. It applies to all behaviors, almost all behaviors that we consider um, prosocial. So if prosocial behaviors are not selectively advantageous within social groups, how can they evolve? The answer is we have to increase in scale and we have to, then, there, then we can note that, um, that uh, the groups that behave prosocially will robustly outcompete groups that are more divisive. So there is an advantage to virtue and prosocial behaviors, but it is not at the smallest scale within groups. And it is a slightly larger scale between groups and a multi-group population. So that explains cancer, where the group is the organism, and selection within groups favors cancers, but selection between groups favors the cancer-free organism over the cancer-ridden organism. Same story plays out in the chicken farm. Uh, selection within a group favors aggressive hens. Uh, favor, uh, selection between groups favors docile hens. And of course, as farmers, we can be the selective agent. And so we can actually um, impose uh, a group level selection. And then we can select for um, breeds of hens that are, that are highly, highly productive by group selection. Um, when, where there's no conscious agent, what is the mechanism of selection? I'm going to just read a little passage from your book to make it clear what the, what the issue is. So you say the next step in our journey in explaining multi-level group selection turns what religious believers call the problem of evil on its head. Their problem is to explain how everything associated with the word evil can exist in a world created by an all-powerful and beneficent God. The problem of the evolutionist is to explain how everything associated with the word goodness can evolve in a Darwinian world. Modern evolutionary theory tells us that goodness can evolve, but only when special conditions are met. That's why we must become wise managers of evolutionary processes. Otherwise, evolution takes us where we don't want to go. So, for example, let's say that uh, we have, uh, if hens are out in the wild, then in, in some in a more, if hens are found in a more crowded conditions without a farmer, then we're going to end up with only psychopathic hens because every hen that is born will be a descendant of the most vicious bullying hens because those are the ones that are laying all the eggs and preventing others from reproducing. So what's, what's the mechanism by which altruism and pro-social behaviors can spread within a population? Well, so uh, this, is, um, um, this is a productive conversation. I hope your listeners are thinking so uh, also. And uh, it's interesting to go back and, and realize that uh, when Darwin was, was uh, describing his theory, he made an explicit comparison between artificial selection that was familiar to everyone in which the human is the selective agent and then natural selection in which uh, the selective agent is not uh, humans, but the environment, basically. So uh, basically, individuals that vary um, when that has consequences for survival and reproduction, then 
that natural selection is, is taking place. And so when we think of multi-level selection uh, as, as an elaborated theory of natural selection, then it is also taking place um, at multiple levels. So for example, if you take any social species of animal or even plants for that matter, and you look at their traits, what you'll find is, is that at the most local scale, there's fitness differences, and typically uh, uh, they favor social strategies, which we would regard as aggressive, like the hen. Um, actually, I'll give you a natural example, which is actually much like the hen. Let me do that because I think it illustrates the point of how all of this can be taking place in the sure. wild. Uh, one of my grad students named Omar Eldakar studied a gorgeous insect called the water strider. These are insects that glide on the surface of pools, quiet pools and streams, where they scavenge uh, terrestrial insects that, uh, uh, that fall in. And the males vary uh, tremendously in their aggressiveness, much like the chickens. Uh, some males are, uh, you could only describe them as sexual predators. They hunt females, and when they find one, they attempt to forcibly mate with them. Other males are more docile. Uh, basically waiting to be approached by a female before mating. And it's actually a, 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 a hump-shaped curve, basically. There's, there's, there's a continuum uh, spectrum in male aggressiveness. So we want to know what maintains this variation in the population. So very simply, Omar created groups of water striders, and water striders exist in groups in the, in the wild. And he showed that uh, in any group containing both types, docile and aggressive males, then the aggressive males uh, were more successful, as you might expect. So at the most local scale, evolution with natural selection was favoring aggressiveness, uh, just like the chickens. On the other hand, Omar also showed that groups of docile males, groups in which all the males were docile, were uh, over three times more productive than groups in which all the males were aggressive. Why? It's because in the aggressive groups, the females were being terrorized. They couldn't eat, they couldn't feed, and so therefore they couldn't lay many eggs. And so just like the chickens, groups with docile males were more productive, producing more, collectively producing more babies than groups um, that were mostly aggressive. So this natural example is exactly like the chicken example. And the final piece to explain is how do groups vary? In the, mm. in the, in the experiment, um, you know, we could, we could control that. But what causes variation in this natural example? And the answer to that is a fascinating example. It is movement by the Female. So in, a, in another experiment, Omar allowed individuals to move between groups. And what he discovered was, as you might expect, females that entered a group with aggressive males left as soon as they could. <laughs> Who wouldn't? Yeah. And <laughs> now the aggressive males were free to follow. Everyone could move. But at the end of the day, when everyone is moved to the degree that they do, uh, there was an impressive amount of clustering of females around the docile males. And so movement had created 
the variation among groups. Now notice that in this example, um, uh, it does not unilaterally favor either aggressiveness or dominance. What we have is we have opposing selection pressures at different spatial scales that are keeping variation in the population. There is an advantage to being aggressive, the local advantage, which is keeping aggressive males in the population. And there is an advantage to being docile, which, which manifests at a slightly larger scale, which is keeping docile males in the population. You end up with a mix. It's, I mean, the best situation for the species would be to have all docile males. The aggressive males are not good for anyone but themselves, okay? But they're still there because selection is operating within groups. So now I think you can see how this can be playing out in just the natural world without having any intentional agent uh, because uh, basically natural selection is a multi-level process, uh, no less than artificial selection. Mm. That's really interesting. I was thinking of a couple of parallels as, as you were talking. So I'll try these two parallels on you. First of all, I recently read uh, Susan Cain's book, Quiet, yeah. The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. And one of the things that Cain outlines is that um, businesses, business schools tend to select for the most extroverted individuals and the most kind of driven and competitive individual people. And businesses tend to think that those are the best people to hire as their CEOs. Yep. And in fact, these very individually, individual career-driven, um, competitive uh, people are usually usually do not do as well. Their business businesses run by such people usually do not do as well as businesses run by quiet introverts. And Kane has quite a lot of stats on this. And that seems to me like you think that you will become successful by putting together a group that consists of all of the most successful individuals for the trait that you are looking for. But in fact, what you want is a group that will work well together. Totally. Yep, absolutely. I know her work well. So I thought that was a nice example. And I also, um, this is a rather more frivolous example, but I've been watching Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> um, okay. I'm, and uh, I'm completely addicted to that series. And there you can see very clearly the different levels uh, in action that at the level of the individual, when you have when you have ferocious competition between individuals, you risk damaging the welfare of the entire unit. So, you know, for example, when the Cylons appear, and um, Adama releases the Vipers. Okay. The individual <laughs> Viper pilots may are the individual Viper pilots are more likely to die in the fight. Being a Viper pilot is a very dangerous occupation. Right. But at the same time, by releasing the Vipers, by having having this army of of pilots it's more likely that the ship itself and the people on the ship will survive. Yeah, yeah. So what you're looking for is the survival of humanity. 
So that's a kind of an obvious case of different levels and choosing that you want to reward, you want to set up your incentives such that things are best for the largest group possible. So we we want to set up the incentives such that the results are going to be the best results for the entire planet rather than the best results for you as an individual, for example. Which is the main take-home message of my book, is that we need mm. to have a whole earth ethic. Nothing, nothing less will do. So that is the, the, one of the main take-home messages of my book. Could you give some more specific examples so that I know, I know you've been involved in a, I think it's called the Neighborhood Project, to try to improve living social conditions within neighborhoods. Could you tell us a little bit about how you're using those ideas to, to influence that? Sure, happy to do so. And But um, on my way towards doing that, let me just note that um, in, the, in the last, you know, your, what you, your, your piece of this in the last few minutes, you've raised uh, questions about personality, extroversion and introversion. So there's a whole topic area. Business. There's another topic area which overlaps. Literature. Why is it that science fiction and literature in general, uh, these themes just jump out at you? They leap out at you. And that was one of the points that some of these literary Darwinists made. uh, That, uh, you know, maybe you talked about a close reading. How are we going to use evolution when you do a close reading of a, a poem? But more generally, we can make the point here. Why is it that these evolutionary themes of mating competition and social and within and between group selection and cooperation and all of these things just leap out of the pages of literature? Why haven't comparative literature folks commented upon that? Daniel Nettle, who is one of these people, said, you know, if a baboon could read, he'd be fascinated by Shakespeare. Because you'd see everything in his life, the, the, the alliances, the, the striving for dominance, and, and uh, uh, especially reproductive uh, competition. Another colleague of mine, Jonathan Gottschall, did his thesis on Homer from an evolutionary perspective. Just read the Odyssey and the Iliad, and you'll see the naked ape strutting his stuff. Why shouldn't we be making these comparisons as one of the themes? But actually... I don't want to get too distracted because I want to get to your uh, point about sure. I mean, I think there are already a lot of anthropological readings of of literature. You know, uh, because literature is about human beings, and therefore you are interpreting human behavior. But in when you're studying literature, you're also interested in specifics, not just in large themes that every work has in common. But you're interested in how themes play out in specific contexts. I think it's a little, a little different. Um, you're not just looking for the underlying large patterns, but yeah, people do mention those patterns all the time. So I'm not sure what's what, why you feel that's missing. Well, it need not be either or. Um, Iona, it can be both. And as to whether it was missing, I think that uh, I mean this is not. Uh, I'm, I'm kind of channeling. Uh, the work of others here, because I fully agree that uh, that uh, it really should be both. There should be a large-scale view of the themes of literature and so on, but of course, 
that would be incomplete by itself. You don't want to ignore it entirely, but uh, but then the close reading is also important. And what that does is that gets us into the whole concept of meaning systems, back to symbolic thought, back to the fact that that we think and we act as we do based very largely on our symbolic systems that provide meaning, which can be defined as basically meaning is, is the process of information which informs how we act. When something is meaningful to us, it informs how we, what we, what we do. And I interpret a close reading of something, including a close reading of religion. So when, when I wrote Darwin's Cathedral, I spent six months doing a close reading, you might say, of Calvinism as a, a variety of religion that was exceptionally uh, effective at organizing the city of Geneva and became widely commented for that reason. So I delved into the theology and the, and the structure and the ecclesiastical ordinances and really took a deep dive into this particular um, meaning system to see how much of it could be interpreted as a kind of a social physiology, you might say, which was important for causing this group to function well. And I think that when you do a close reading of a literary work, uh, then I think it's at that level, which is, uh, which is uh, a different enterprise, but equally informed by, by evolutionary thinking, in my opinion. But I got to get back to the neighborhood project. Yes, please. So uh, so we've talked about the chickens, and we've talked about cancer, and we've talked about water striders. Um, and so now let's talk about cities, people in, in cities. And at some point in my career, after studying altruism in all of these different ways, I really wanted to study it in real-world settings. And so I met my school superintendent of our public school system. Her name was Peggy Wozniak. And with her help, I gave a survey to all of the students in grades six through 12 that measured their prosociality, their orientation towards being nice to others or not. And you could ask, can you measure such things? And we can get to that. But this was a survey that that, uh, aspired to to measure these things. And just as with chickens and water striders, there was a bell-shaped curve. Some people were highly prosocial, others the opposite. Most people were in between. And in addition to measuring their individual prosociality, we also measured the amount of social support that they received from uh, five sources, family, neighborhood, school, church, and extracurricular activities. And so we now had the prosociality of each individual and the prosociality of their social environment. And what evolutionary thinking tells us is that for prosociality to succeed as a social strategy in a Darwinian world, those who give must get. Just from an input-output perspective, if those who give are not actually receiving from others, then they cannot survive in a Darwinian world. So what we were measuring was the correlation 
between the individual and their social environment. And what we found was a very high correlation indeed, a correlation coefficient of 0.7, which is very high. So statistically speaking, the most other-oriented kids in my city were nurtured by their social uh, environment. And although social support need not be spatially based, it had a very strong spatial component so that when we mapped the prosociality of the kids to their residential locations, we produced a map of prosociality, a geographical map of my city of Binghamton. And it was a, a very rugged topography. In other words, there were neighborhoods, uh, there were, it was very patchy, neighborhoods that were very high or very low in prosociality. On a scale from one to 100 at the individual level and how prosocial you are as an individual, a neighborhood could vary by as many as 50 points. So here we have this kind of clustering that we have discussed with the chickens and with the water striders. That clustering takes place in, in human life. So we can begin to think about prosociality as a social strategy which can succeed or fail in human life depending upon the circumstances. And those circumstances are much the same as um, what's needed for the genetic evolution of prosociality. So here again, we have, we have this expansion of thinking where we can think about, about prosociality in, in human life. No genetic evolution we're talking about at all. We're talking about the selection of social strategies and flexible individuals. But the logic and the theory is just the same. Let me see. There are a couple of things I, I wanted to ask you, if that's okay. First of all, where do you differ from the gene-based? What are some of the critiques that you get from other evolutionary biologists who, are, who, who don't use multi-level selection theory? So I know Jerry Coyne, for example, is skeptical of some of these ideas, what are some of the common critiques and your answers to them? Or what's the most common critique and how, how do you address that? Well, let me make a couple of points in reply to that. Uh, if we go back to the 1970s, and you said that you read and were blown away by Richard Alex, uh, by uh, Dawkins' The Selfish Gene, mm. um, um, Ed Wilson's Sociobiology came out the year before. Um, and both of those uh, books, as synthetic as they were, uh, were also very, very highly gene-centric, right? I mean, Dawkins portrayed uh, what we do with lumbering robots controlled by our genes, right? And, and Ed Wilson um, also was uh, more or less explaining everything in terms of genetic evolution. At that time, people who were opposed to that especially in the social sciences, uh, were basically saying that there was no, no scope given for culture. They called it genetic determinism. And what they felt was being left out was uh, the enormous role that, that culture plays in human evolution. Well, those critics were right. And, but now we're faced with a, a, a different situation in which the evolutionists with the help of the social sciences, because, you know, there's been a lot of positive integration. The idea that the evolutionists are like imperialistically treading upon 
the territory of social scientists and and um, and um, and humanists doesn't get it right at all, because most of the a lot of the creative work is being done by people on the social science and humanist side that are just embracing evolution. So it's very synthetic and and transdisciplinary. But in any case, um, the um, uh, the idea that of social constructivism basically is right on. It's dead on. Correct. I wrote an essay titled Evolutionary Social Constructivism. If you're a social constructivism, you're not wrong. You just might benefit from evolutionary uh, principles. So uh, so I think that there's been a, a sea change with respect to the appreciation of culture and symbolic thought. And that goes way beyond uh, genetic uh, determinism of the Dawkinsian and Wilsonian variety in the 19th. 70s. Now, in both cases, there is the uh, a controversy over multi-level selection and alternative um, interpretations. And what I mostly want to say there is uh, has to do with the idea of equivalence, <laughs> which is um, the the idea that that two theories might differ not in their causal explanations, but in their perspectives. Uh, two theories might differ only in their perspectives, and therefore it can coexist. This is a form of pluralism, which I think is familiar to people in the, in the uh, humanities, which embrace multiple uh, uh, perspectives. I often talk about it as like, let's say that you're uh, only speak one language, and, and you're foolish enough to think that other languages are confusing uh, just because you can't speak and, and understand them. Surely you must be more pluralistic than, than that. And so it turns out that much of the controversy uh, about uh, group selection and its alternatives uh, turns out to be a confusion about uh, perspectives, that these theories actually uh, can both be correct and can deserve to coexist by virtue of offering different perspectives. And a short way for me to illustrate that is that if you're so, if you read um, uh, Selfish Gene and were blown away by it, as many were, and I don't criticize Dawkins in all respects, you know that he made a distinction between replicators and and vehicles. Mm, so yes. the gene is the the gene is the replicator. Okay. Uh, individuals are not replicators, groups are not replicators, but individuals are vehicles. So the idea that the individual is a highly coordinated unit and all of the genes work together, they're cooperative genes, at least as far as their interactions within individuals are concerned, and that selection operates on vehicles, not directly on replicators, all of this is firmly within uh, the uh, selfish gene framework. And so what it turns out that at the end of the day, Dawkins took something away by uh, denying an important role for group selection. And then he gave something back, vehicles, which is exactly what he took away. He gave back exactly what he took away. We could talk about groups as vehicles of selection, for example. And there we are back again. And again and again with all of the theories that were posed as alternatives to group selection, kin selection and reciprocal altruism 
evolutionary game theory, all of these different theoretical framework. It turns out that they give back exactly what they took away. And so what we must do is realize the common elements of all theories of social evolution. And you cannot get away from the fundamental trade-off, the fact that that a social, a pro-social behavior, something done for the benefit of others or uh, one's group as a whole is locally disadvantageous. This is a fact of life. It's based on the fundamental nature of trade-offs and no theory of social evolution can get around the local disadvantage of pro-social behaviors. And so Mm -hmm. therefore, no theory of social evolution can get around the need for a selective differential at a higher scale, at a higher uh, spatial scale. There must be some sense in which groups of cooperators outcompete groups that are less cooperative in order to counterbalance the selective disadvantage among the individuals that are socially interacting with each other. And so that is what I think um, we can agree upon. And and uh, I guess the only other point I would like to make, which is more of a sociological point, is controversies such as these, I hate to say it, are decadal. They should be resolved quickly, but they're not. And so decades are required. Decades were required for people to agree that continents drift, even though it's obvious in retrospect. And if you look at past cases, what you find are very famous and smart people who are at the losing end of uh, the controversy. Uh, they don't change their minds. And so for some people, not all, science progresses funeral by uh, a funeral. I wish it could be, I wish it could be uh, otherwise. And other people are more flexible, even um, uh, at an advanced and an advanced age. Maybe we could end by talking about how this, how we might apply these principles um, to our own lives, because that's something you also touch on in the book. There is something that I want to say, and I wasn't quite sure where to say it, so I'll just say it now, which is um, one thing I took from the book, from your book personally, is that it's crucial if we want to find the best way of doing something, it's crucial that we have a number of different variations to choose from, that we examine a number of different paths. And what we tend to do socially is that we we obviously we reward success and um, we are ashamed of failure. We tend to look at things backwards. We begin with, for example, some successful businessman will write a book and the fact that he's successful will be taken as evidence that the way he did things was the right way of doing them. And what we don't look at is all the people who did things almost the same way as he did, but were not successful. You know, for every successful startup business, there are 80 that fail and go bankrupt. And Part of that is luck. We tend to discount the element of luck very strongly, even though it's it's clearly it clearly makes a, a huge difference to people's uh, success in life. Factors factors beyond our control are 
influential and important at all stages, but also it doesn't enable us to, it really skews our understanding of what it takes to be successful. And it also leads us to blame people for not being successful um, because we that we also um, end up simplifying, suggesting that it's much easier to be successful than it actually is. And that's because of this backward thinking, taking the one case of success and then extrapolating back, rather than looking at a much wider range of data. And for that, you need to look at all the failures. Does, I, I, I don't know if I'm making any sense there. No, you're making, you're making great sense. I call this the morality of the cancer cell. If a cancer cell could talk, it would say, look how fast I'm growing. Everyone should grow as fast as me. But that, of course, would be <laughs> disastrous. for the. But that's literally the case, is that if you see so much that's taking place is cancerous, literally in the same sense that cancer is cancerous. Yes, they are succeeding within the society, but no, not in a way that's going to benefit the society as a whole. And so we have to recognize cancerous processes where they exist. And if we don't, then we're going to go the way of cancer-ridden individuals. So we have to be much more holistic and systemic in what we uh, uh, select for. So that's there's much to say there on the larger scale. But let me now make make my final response multi-level as I do at the end of my book and ask the question, you know, what can we do first as an individual? All of us can do that. Secondly, as members of groups, all of us can do that too, because all of us participate in multiple groups. And then some of us are in a position to do things at a still larger scale. But at the individual level, then the idea that each and every one of us is an evolving system and that we must manage our own evolution or can manage our own evolution, I think has tremendous import. So I encourage everyone to follow up on that, to learn more about ACT, acceptance and commitment um, therapy and, and training and how it could be envisioned as a way of managing your own evolution to align them with your normative goals. Every year we make our New Year's resolutions and every year we fail to keep them. So that's an illustration of how left unmanaged our personal evolutionary processes often take us where we don't want to go. We need to align them and there are very effective ways of doing that. Then at the scale of small groups, all the groups that we exist in can function well or poorly and and for them to function well, They must um, do something which you yourself alluded to earlier in this this conversation. They must be structured to suppress the potential for disruptive, self-serving behaviors so that the group can operate as a cooperative unit. And there's specific ways of of doing that. I uh, encourage your listeners to go to prosocial.world, www.prosocial.world for practical tools for for doing this. And I have a book coming out in October with my colleague, Stephen C. Hayes, who I've mentioned, and and, uh, Paul Atkins, another ACT colleague. Uh, The book is titled Prosocial, 
And it, once again, provides very practical tools for any group, no matter what it's trying to do, to function better as a group. Um, and it has much to do with multi-level uh, selection, suppressing the potential for disruptive within-group selection so that the group becomes the, the um, adaptive unit. So, so um, uh, at the individual level, at the, at the small group level, and then at the larger scale, I think uh, there's um, much could be done informed by this view of life. Sure, I will. Um, I will put all of those references in the show notes. So, David, um, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. And um, I would recommend everybody goes and reads your book. <laughs> well, that's great. Have a lovely week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus. By becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.